Good morning, everybody. How's it going? Awesome. Just to piggyback on Jordan Peterson, and I know he's a, if you don't know who he is, then don't even worry about it. But for some, uh, he is a lightning rod of controversy. Um, just, just a couple other thoughts before we jump in this morning uh, to piggyback on what Peterson was saying in terms of the position of women within scripture. And these are just things that fl- came off the top of my head as I was preparing this morning. Uh, in Genesis chapter two, the word that God uses to describe Eve in the creation story, English word is the word helper. It's the same Hebrew word that God uses to refer to himself throughout the Old Testament. Jesus had women as his, some of his closest followers. Jesus is first appearance after his resurrection was to women. Uh, It was a woman who was the first to declare the reality of the resurrection. And women were paramount to the spread of the gospel in the early church in the book of Acts. So uh, to make Peterson's point, just imagine how unlikely that is in light of the time that the scriptures were written. It's quite a thought. It's quite a sobering and staggering thought. And I love what he does in there. And and just to be clear, Jordan Peterson, to my knowledge, is not a follower of Jesus. He's very sympathetic to the Christian story. Uh, But when she makes her claim that the the Bible um, is oppressive to women, um, his first question is, well, where? What verses? Uh, And she started to quote some verses that she actually was going to go on and misquote if he had let her finish her thought. Uh, And the the short answer was she, she just didn't have she didn't have any verses. She just had always heard that and thought it was true, even though it wasn't. Anyway, good morning. How you doing? Uh, my name is Chris. If I haven't met you yet, uh, one of the leaders here at the church, I am alive and well, mostly. Many of you have asked, how you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm, uh, this is how I'm saying it. I'm, I'm better, but I'm not best. So there's a good chance you're going to get a hack or a snort. Uh, or a snot in the middle of this, <clears throat> for which uh, I apologize. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, the alternative was uh, Andrew, you know, preaches my sermon again this week, and he, he voted for this option. So here we are. Um, we are in the middle of a teaching series as a church. We've been going uh, through the book of Ephesians, and the, the letter of Ephesians is a letter written by a man named the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul planted a number of churches and then uh, wrote letters to them to help uh, instruct them and teach them how to be God's people, and the letter of Ephesians uh, is really a letter written to a group of churches uh, in Asia Minor that were immersed in a culture that didn't know and love Jesus, didn't serve Jesus. And he's giving them instruction on what it means to be God's people in the midst of that culture. In other words, how do you follow Jesus when you live in a city that doesn't follow him, doesn't know him? And so where we find ourselves in Ephesians 5 is uh, some of the specific instruction that the Apostle Paul is giving to the church at this time is how households are to be ordered. <clears throat> And in this one particular section, verses uh, 21 through 32, uh, he spends quite a bit of time uh, unpacking the issue of uh, marriage, the issue of gender, and the issue of sexuality. And as we came to this section, we just felt like as a church, it would be wise of us to just hit pause and kind of do a double click on this section. Because what we see in our culture, and I don't think it's a stretch for you to imagine Uh, that this is the case, is that this is a pretty significant conversation that has been being had in our our culture for a number of years, almost a decade now. Uh, And we feel like it's important as a church to stop and and really ask the question, like, what is Jesus's vision for us when it comes to these issues? In other words, how do we think uh, Jesus' thoughts? How do we have a Christian mind Uh, when it comes to the issue of marriage, gender, and uh, sexuality. Because the reality is, is, uh, and and you might not be aware of this, but to not be aware of this is, I I actually think it's, um, uh, just choose my words carefully here, Uh, it's it's silly, okay? it, it, It lacks sober awareness of what is happening. But we are by necessity, just the way the world works, we are being discipled all the time. We have things that are being taught to us. We are learning. We are absorbing information and content. And, and often is the case, we're not even aware that it's happening. So our worldview is being shaped and it's being formed. And we're not even um, 
we're not even aware that this is taking place. And so we live in a world that has particular ways and thoughts when it comes to these issues, and they're not necessarily the ways of Jesus. And so what we're saying as a church is we just want to take some time. Uh, we don't think this is the most important issue, but we think it's an important issue. And we think it's, it's worth us taking some time to talk about these issues. So two weeks ago, if you were here, I, I uh, kicked off this kind of series within a series on Jesus's vision for marriage. Last week, Aaron, uh, Andrew uh, talked about Jesus's vision for manhood. And then I have the, the lovely task of um, this morning teaching on Jesus's vision uh, for womanhood. What is, what is Jesus's vision for womanhood? So uh, just start by saying, I love you, all of you, and you love me. And let's remember that as we go through this journey <laughs> together. All right, ladies? Deal? Deal. My wife's not here. I don't know what that means, but she's like, I ain't coming. No, she's at home. She's not well. I passed on the love to her, and so she's at home. Uh, one of the things we've been saying though in the series is uh, we do want to create some space for dialogue. Like we understand uh, the things that we're saying in this series are, they run against the grain of culture. Uh, we don't want to be a monolith though. Like we want to be the kind of community where, it, where it's okay to disagree. It's okay to have opinions that are contrary to ours. And not, what I'm not saying by this is that we don't think truth matters or truth is important, but we understand that people are on a journey. And so we don't want to say, you know, this is the way it is. If you don't like it, like get out of here. No, no, no. That's super unhealthy and unhelpful. Uh, it, it's okay if you're not in the same place we are at. Uh, we might not agree on these things. It doesn't mean we're going to necessarily change our position, but what it does mean is we want to walk and talk and think and process these things out together. I hope what you'll see as we unpack these ideas is that our ideas are coming from the scriptures. Like we're not making these up. These aren't my opinions. These aren't Andrew's opinions. These aren't the opinions of the elders or others in our church. Like we're just trying to read the Bible and like, this is what we think it says. Uh, tell us if you think we're wrong. Um, but what we do want to do is create some space for, for interaction and feedback. So you'll see, I think on the screen behind me, there's a, a number there that'll be up there on every slide. <coughs> if there's anything I say that you have a question about, or you want asked text into that number, it's anonymous. Uh, and then at the end of the series, we'll just, if we have enough questions that, that, that it's worthwhile, we'll like record a podcast or a video or something like that uh, and make that available to, uh, to everybody. Sound good. Yeah. All right. You got a Bible. No, if you don't, there's some on the table. If you do, go to Ephesians 5. We're, I'll, I'll just, like, we're going to be kind of all over the place. Ephesians 5 is going to be home base. You can download a Bible app on your phone, follow along there. I would encourage you to go to the verses uh, that we're reading, um, just so you can see that these are not my ideas. I will say this, though, that this morning I'm going to do a, a, a bunch of review. And because it's review, I'm not actually going to read from the verses. Uh, but you can, or, or at least I'm not going to turn there. Uh, they, some of them might be on the screen. We'll see. Um, but I would encourage you just take notes, like write down in your phone. Chris said this passage says this. I want to go, I want to go look it up. Uh, why don't we pray uh, and then uh, we can get into this. Lord Jesus, we believe that um, as the psalmist writes, there are pleasures in your right hand forevermore. Uh, that if we would, um, if we would humble ourselves, all of us if we would submit ourselves to your lordship and to your rule and to your reign and to your ways and to your ideas, that um, in the midst of that, we would find joy. We would find delight and we would find pleasure. <clears throat> it might not always seem like that. And so spirit of God, I ask that you would open our hearts to receive this morning uh, for myself, I pray you would um, guard my mind and my heart and my words as I speak. Um, I pray that you would uh, give me clarity of thought and um, just precision of, of language so as to not needlessly upset or offend. I have no interest in that this morning, Jesus. I want to honor and cherish uh, your bride and my, my family and specifically my sisters in Christ. So I pray you would lead and guide in that. And for us as a church family, I pray that our hearts would be good soil to receive. I pray specifically for uh, my sisters in Christ, that you would prepare their hearts, that you uh, would take 
take your word and plant it, hide it in their heart. That even if there's things that are um, hard to hear, maybe even offensive or maybe um, not pleasing initially, I pray you would massage that seed and it would it would be useful in producing what you want to produce in each of us. So, Spirit of God, we invite you to be here. We know you're here already, but we just acknowledge your presence. We want to hear from you, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said... Amen. Okay, so I'm going to stick close to my notes because I don't want to mess this up. Uh, So bear with me. Um, (coughs) But last week, Andrew took time uh, to define gender from a biblical worldview. And as I already said, uh, we are bombarded with ideas about what gender is and what it isn't. And so I do want to take some time to review this. I think it's really important because this is really the anchor from which all the other thoughts we have on this issue kind of hang. And so I want to take some time to help us have a biblical worldview on what gender is and consequently what it isn't. So this is the definition that Andrew uh, read last week. This is what we believe is a biblical or Christian definition of gender. Gender, biblically speaking, is the distinction between male and female as preordained by God in the created order. Gender, biblically speaking, is the distinction between male and female as preordained by God in the created order. So let me just make a couple of quick comments on this by way of review. We see right in Ephesians chapter five, this passage that we're kind of working our way through, that there is a clear distinction between both man and woman in in function, but then also in essence, And what we often will hear when we come to a text like this, you have probably heard something like this before if you've been in church for any length of time, and and maybe some of you will even feel these thoughts if these ideas are new to you, is that clearly what the Apostle Paul is saying is rooted in a particular time, in a particular place, in other words, in a particular culture. And we have to um, unnest it from its culture to properly understand it. And while there is a lot of truth to that, that's how we do biblical interpretation. Uh, We often take texts that were written at particular times in particular places to particular people and then apply them to our current context. Another aspect of biblical interpretation is asking the question, why is the Apostle Paul making this argument? Or, Or what is the basis for his argument on these particular issues? And here's what you will find. And I know Andrew said this last week, but it's, it's just really important for us to understand this. Whenever you are going to hear the Apostle Paul make an argument about the nature of uh, male and female, whether it's in their ontology or in their, their role, what he does is not root it in culture. He roots it in creation. And that's very significant because it's a way of, of us understanding that God has designed the world to work in a particular way. We've been using this illustration of uh, C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity where he says that, that uh, God is like an inventor and, and humanity and the world is like a machine. And there's a way that the world works that is best. And that is rooted in the created order. It's rooted in the way that God has created things. So in other words, what I am saying is when it comes to a text like Ephesians 5 or any really of the texts where the Apostle Paul is addressing significant gender issues, it is woefully insufficient to say. Okay, let me just, let me, I can't state this in like clear enough terms. It is woefully insufficient to say, and you, (laughs) before I say what I'm gonna say, you will hear this said from the pulpit in some churches, but it is woefully insufficient to say, well, it is 2023, so let's just move on from this idea. That is not how we do biblical interpretation. That is just not how it's done. Because Paul's argument is that there is a particular picture of gender that was God's design and intent. We see that if you go to verse 31, if you have your Bible, go to verse 31 for a second, where he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. He's quoting there out of Genesis chapter two. Thus, 
letting us know, tipping us off. He is hanging his thoughts on this idea of the way that husband and wife, male and female are to work, not on a cultural moment, but on a created reality. So important. This, this is the anchor to us properly understanding from a biblical perspective what gender actually is. So what I want to do just really quickly is highlight three issues out of the Genesis account. Again, this is a bit of review, but I, I think it's just so important for us to understand properly what, genes, uh, what gender is. So the first uh, issue that I want to highlight, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we're told this, God created mankind in his own image. And in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That's Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So what we're told right here in this verse, and this is kind of the first thought that I want us to understand about gender when it comes to having a biblical worldview is this, that gender is binary, male and female, and it is God's design. He created, and we see this right in the verse, he created both male and female as a way of imaging himself to the world, picturing himself to the world, reflecting who he is to the world. Again, I've said this already, but I'm going to keep saying it. This is vital to the Christian understanding of what gender actually is. As followers of Jesus, this core concept must anchor how we understand what gender is. That gender is not a happenstance. It is not an accident. It is God's design to reflect who he is to the world. Gender binary and gender roles were not an afterthought of God's. Interestingly enough, if you go to, we won't turn there this morning, but if you go to Ephesians 1 in chapter 1 verses 4 to 6, we are told by the apostle Paul that Jesus' death on the cross was God's plan from before the foundation of the earth. That Jesus going to the cross to save sinners has been God's plan from eternity past. None of us would argue with that. I don't think. This has always been God's plan that Jesus would go to the cross from before the foundations of the earth, that Jesus would go to the cross to save, rescue, and redeem sinners, to establish his church. But then notice this, because this is so important, because the two are inextricably connected. And, and I realize this is less of a sermon at this point and, and more of a seminar, but we, we, have to, we have to understand that theology undergirds everything that we believe and, and how we perceive and how we think and actually how we live. So I, I'm, I'm actually asking you to think theologically about these things. So if that is true, what the apostle Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter one, verses four to six is true, that, that Jesus going to the cross was God's plan from before the foundations of the earth. Then, then follow this logic with me. The image of gender, male and female, husband and wife, is often used throughout the scriptures to depict the image of God like we read in Genesis 1, including depicting the cross like Paul says in Ephesians 5. So if God's plan has always been that Jesus would go to the cross, and what we see in the scriptures, we see it right here in Ephesians 5 verse 32. That's what the apostle Paul says in verse 32. This is a profound mystery talking about two becoming one, husband and wife, male and female, their roles, all that, which we'll unpack in just a second. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And we see this constantly throughout the scripture that... that um, Gender, male and female, husband and wife are used as images to depict the reality of what was done for us by Jesus on the cross. And if the cross was not an afterthought of God's, it stands to reason then that neither was gender. Now, now this is full on heresy, what I'm about to say, okay? So pause the tape, pause the podcast. Let's keep this between us. But this isn't, this isn't how the Trinity works, okay? But this is just to give you a bit of an illustration. It, it's not as if the Trinity was up in heaven, looked at one another and said, ah, shoot, uh, we, we created this world and there's sin in it. What are we gonna do now? And the father looked at the son and he was like, hey, Jesus, you're gonna have to go take one for the team and go to the cross, and Holy Spirit, it's your job to write the Bible, so you got to come up with some good uh, illustrations to help these dense people 
really understand what's going on here. So why don't you make up like the male, female, husband, wife thing so that we can help these people understand it. It's not how it worked. This was God's plan. This has always been God's plan since before the foundations of the earth. And so if that's the case, then we have to understand, like this is foundational to our understanding of what gender actually is, that this is God's design. It's not an accident. It's not a happenstance. It's not some ancient patriarchal idea. It's not some Bronze Age myth. It's the way the universe has been ordered and designed by God. And it's been done this way. And this is going to become very important as we go forward this morning. It's been done this way to paint a picture to the world of what God is like. Foundational. I don't want to over, overplay my hand here. But, but I think I can say this with a clear conscience. There is no other Christian definition of gender than this. And this whole morning, we're going to have to wrestle with, you know, if this is out of alignment with what I think, I have to ask some questions. Am I going to submit or am I going to ask the scriptures to submit? Am I going to curb my ideas or am I going to ask Jesus to, to curb his? But my contention is there is no other Christian definition or understanding of gender. Second thing I want to say really quickly, I got to pick up the pace here. In Genesis 2, Genesis two uh, chapter 2, verse 18, after Adam is created, we are told by God in the garden, it is not good for man to be alone. This was, this point I want to make here was alluded to in the video that we watched already. But it's so important that we understand that there is no hierarchy between the genders. Both male and female are ontologically equal. Meaning in their very essence, they are equal before God. I alluded to this already, but that in, in the next part of verse 18, Eve is described as Adam's helper. And many would read that and go, oh my gosh, that's so patriarchal. That's so, she, she's just like supposed to be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen and make him sandwiches. What a demeaning term to use for a woman. But the Hebrew word that is used there to describe Eve is the same Hebrew word that God uses to describe himself. It's actually a term of great honor and endearment. <clears throat> it's only when we read it through uh, our particular worldview and our particular lens that we come to that conclusion. Many theologians would say that Eve was actually the crown jewel of the creation story. The, uh, chapter two, verse 18, it is not good for man to be alone. That's the first time in the creation narrative that we are told something is not good. And then after Eve is brought into the picture, we are told it is very good. So what this means is that a robust Christian view of gender should be against any patriarchal view of gender, which seeks to elevate man above woman or a feminist view of gender, which seeks to elevate woman above man. Both of these views of gender tend to place all the emphasis on the role of each gender rather than the inherent value that each gender has based on their reality that they were created and made in the image and likeness of God. But it appears to me that the biblical view of gender is that both male and female are made in the image and likeness of God and that each has a unique role to play in that uh, imaging. And without each role playing its part, there would be an incompleteness. So the way that we say this here at West Village in our context is that we believe that men and women complement each other. Both are equal, but in the unique way, they operate and serve one another in the ultimate task of making Jesus known. Last thing I want to say about this as I build a foundation 
And I won't turn to these verses, but I would encourage you to make note of them and go back and look at them in Genesis chapter two, verse seven and Genesis chapter uh, two, verses 20 to 22. We see this reality that there are differences ordained by God between male and female. We see differences in how they were created and we see differences in their role and their functions. And from this, we can deduce that while men and women are equal in every way equal, this is so important. They are equal. They are not the same. They are different. Men and women are equal, but they are not the same. They are different. As Matthew Henry, a Bible scholar said, commenting on uh, chapter two, verse 18 of Genesis, he said, Eve was not taken out of Adam's head to top him, neither out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but rather out of his side to be equal with him and to work alongside him. So what does all this mean? I want to draw just a couple of conclusions and in doing so, I want to, I want to interact just a little bit. One of the hearts we've had in this series, I want to interact a little bit with culture, but one of the hearts we've had in this series is man, like it would be easy to get up here for us to get up here and, and say, culture's dumb, culture's stupid. People are dumb. People are stupid. Uh, here's a bunch of uh, examples of that. And just dunk, just dunk on culture over and over again, dunk on culture. And, you know, it's Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. So like 97% of the people in here, like that'd be red meat for you guys. You'd say, that's awesome. And then afterwards you'd come up to us and shake our hand. You go get them, pastor. You tell the world how dumb they are. Meanwhile, uh, the only people listening are church people anyway. So it didn't really matter. Um, and, and one of our hearts is to not do that. For a couple of reasons. Uh, one, because I don't think it's helpful. Uh, I don't think it's helpful to just to dunk on culture and to make people feel stupid. It's like the least effective way to actually have a meaningful conversation with someone is to tell them how dumb they are um, and to disingenuously represent their views. So don't want to do that. Uh, second reason is because we also want to model uh, as a church family, like what does it look like to uh, be the people of God in this city and have, have meaningful conversations around these ideas and, and thoughtful conversations around these ideas so that we can actually engage and, and have dialogue, right? Have dialogue around this stuff. And so, so I want to interact with, with some of the ideas of culture, but I really, I'm not, I'm not out to slam. I'm not out to uh, make fun of or demonize in any way the culture. Although I, I do think some of the ideas that are in culture, you heard me say this this morning, I think they're demonic. I really do. Um, but but I don't want to um, unnecessarily offend. So, so let me just draw two conclusions uh, in light of this, this framework for gender. The first one is this, and we'll get to women in a minute, don't worry. Um, but the first, first conclusion is this, the purpose of gender, and this is gonna be very important in just a minute, both, both men and women, the ultimate purpose of gender is to make Jesus known. The reason that God gave us gender, male and female, husband and wife, male and female and husband and wife, those two are not necessarily linked. The reason for it is so that people would come to know Jesus. It's the ultimate purpose. Second conclusion is this. Our culture's obsession with attempting to flatten the distinction between gender, meaning we have this idea that whatever a man can do, a woman can do the same or better. Or culture's obsession with eliminating gender categories altogether. For example, claiming that gender is fluid, non-binary, etc. It actually robs all of us of a beautiful gift that God has given us. When we try and eliminate gender categories and distinction altogether between genders, when our culture does this, it robs us of a beautiful gift that God has given us in the distinction between male and female. Like I said this a couple weeks ago, but the psalmist writes in Psalm 16 that in God's right hand are pleasures forever more that if we would trust Jesus 
if we would trust God's design. He has beautiful gifts that he wants to give to us, but so often we are unwilling to receive them because they offend our senses and our sensibilities. I want to make just a couple further comments on this because I think it's important to understand and just think through the current cultural ideology as it pertains to gender. When we divorce gender from God's intent, from God's design and God's purposes, and we reduce it to mere, di- uh, mere biology, we miss the point of true manhood and womanhood. This isn't true of just gender. This is true of everything, money, sex, marriage, our time. When we divorce it from how God designed it, it will not work properly. In fact, it will end up causing pain and trauma in our lives instead of joy and satisfaction the way God intended. So the way that this plays itself out in our current cultural moment is that there is all kinds of confusion culturally with regards to gender because we don't understand what gender actually is. And more importantly than that, we don't understand why gender actually is. So in the most generalist of terms, just to help us think through this, for many uh, women, womanhood has been reduced, and this may be specifically or more, more prominent in the church, womanhood has been reduced to being a wife, to being able to have children, and to being able to raise those children. Some of our cultural markers of womanhood, things like wearing a dress or being what we would describe as feminine, But what happens if any or all of those things aren't possible? What if you aren't able to be married? What if you aren't able to have children? Um, Then what? What if you don't desire those things? Then what? Are you less of a woman because of that? On the other end of the spectrum of womanhood, there are some women who feel that and, and, My wife has certainly experienced some of this before, but to be a stay-at-home mom who raises her kids, who fits a more traditional female stereotype is somehow selling out to the patriarchy, right? She is not woman and you can't hear her roar. Is that true? What if you're a man who doesn't want a beard, doesn't drink craft beer, doesn't like ultimate fighting or playing sports? What if you're more sensitive, tender, What if you're more nurturing? Does that make you less of a man? And if you just look at our culture in some of the most extreme cases where we have divorced gender from God's design and intent, it leads to extreme extreme instances of abuse. Some of the most inhumane acts in all of humanity have been done when we divorce the image of God from another person. When we make someone less than human, less than the Imago Dei is actually within them, it enables us and allows us to do terrible, terrible things to one another. History is certainly our teacher on that. But to make my point, if you understood what a woman truly is, you wouldn't watch porn. If you understood what a man truly is, you wouldn't try and beat out some of his natural desires. If we truly understood what gender was, we wouldn't be willing to harm one another, to harm a young person based on how they feel in the moment. I truly believe that all the mess that we are in as it pertains to gender, abuse, and harm. It all flows out of a lie of what gender actually is. Full stop. And I know I alluded to this already, and I don't want to be dramatic, but I do believe that Satan is the father of lies. The first lie he told was in the garden to Eve, where he said, did God really say? And where there is mistrust in the word of God, there will most certainly be brokenness, pain, and hardship. And I think that is the fruit we are seeing in our culture today. Now, I want to just be super clear. I know we've said this many times throughout the series. I want to continue to say this. this is, these are real issues. 
They impact real people. Andrew talked a little bit last week about just like personal experience that my family has had with close friends who have gone through just significant struggles around gender dysphoria and gender confusion. And that's the case for many of us. I think the church needs to be not just a place like on Sunday morning, but the, the type of people, a community where, where it's safe to journey and it's safe to struggle and it's safe to dialogue and it's safe to have conversations about these things. People who are weary and broken and hurting and sad, they need to find a home and a refuge amongst the family of God. Amen. And when we just dunk on culture and dunk on politics and and turn the whole thing into a, a cultural meme and share stupid things on social media, we erode our ability to be that place. so important. But, but we do no favors to our culture or to anyone when we don't tell the truth. That is also very unloving. I will invoke a quote by Mark Buchanan that I've been using for years when I address these issues. And he says this, as Christians, when we speak the truth, it should be so soaked in grace that it is hard to receive, sorry, that it is hard to reject. But the grace offered needs to be so, so, so truth soaked that it is hard to receive. As Christians, when we speak the truth, it should be so soaked in grace that it is hard to reject, but the grace offered needs to be so truth soaked that it is hard to receive. I think we can all think of many examples where the church has gone into one ditch or the other. We haven't been gracious, but we've been truthful. We haven't been truthful, but we've been gracious. Mark Buchanan is saying there needs to be like a third way. We need to hold that tension. We see Jesus holding that tension We haven't always done that well, but I think that's the tension we need to fight for as a church. All right, let's transition. Let's talk about Jesus's vision for womanhood. Believe it or not, everything I've said so far is probably going to be the least controversial. You're like, I'm glad I don't have that guy's job. So let's just do it. Let's get it over with and go home and have lunch. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> let, me, let me start. I'm just going to jump right into the piles of poo that are everywhere around this issue and address the obvious elephant in the room. Why, Chris, are you the one giving this message? Why not a woman? I know many of you are asking it. And my guess is those of you who are asking it are not going to like my answer. But I do not write the mail. I simply deliver the mail. And if you don't like the letter you receive, you can take it up with the author. Sort of a joke. Tense room. Here we go. All right. Here's here's my first response to that. I think it's obvious, but maybe it isn't. But if, if the thoughts that I am presenting to us this morning are rooted in the scriptures, then at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter who delivers the message, man or woman. The content is the content. If you disagree with the content, then come and talk to me. If you think I'm misinterpreting or misrepresenting what these verses, and this, this is more of a biblical theology, but then by all means, come and talk to me happily have that conversation. Here's the second reason, and this is likely substantially more controversial, but what the heck? At West Village, we believe and hold the position that I've already laid out, 
that men and women are equal in every way, but that they are different. What that means, and we'll see this more clearly in just a second, is that men and women have different roles to play. Although they are completely equal, they have different roles to play. And from what I am able to understand and what we as a church are able to understand, the instruction in the New Testament that is given to the church through the Apostle Paul is that the office and function of elder is to be held by men only. We've taught on this many times in our history. I can point you to those resources that can help you understand that. But that also with this idea that the office of elder is to be held by a male only, what this means is that the function of the elders, which is to teach and preach by extension, will be done by males. So if the office of elder is to be held by a male only, and one of the functions of that office is to teach and preach in the church, then the teaching and preaching in the church will be done, the lion's share of it at least, will be done by men. Now, I want to clarify that just a little bit. What that doesn't mean is that we will only ever have elders teach and preach. We have had non-elders teach and preach over the history of our church, although I will say that our elders do the vast majority of it, but not all of it. And it also doesn't mean we would never have a woman teach on a Sunday. In fact, we have done that on a couple of occasions. It just simply means that the elders, and by extension men, not all men, only men that are qualified to be elders, will do most of the teaching and preaching. Now again, just for the sake of clarity, we have women that do all kinds of ministry in our church, lead all kinds of ministry with the exception of the office and function that comes with that office of eldership. So again, that's the short answer. I mean, that in and of itself deserves an entire sermon. If you have questions about that, please come and ask. Um, we, we, <laughs> we love the ladies at West Village. We honor women, we cherish women, we release them to do ministry. This is not an oppressive doctrine. Um, but we, we want to dialogue with you on that if you have questions. All right, let's get into this idea of Jesus's vision for womanhood. So if everything we have said this morning and even last week about gender is true, then I think we can say with a high degree of clarity that Jesus's ultimate vision for womanhood, it, it can be summarized like this, that the glory of Christ would be put on display in such a way that a world caught in sin and lies would see his greatness and turn to him. Ladies, if you're wondering what does it mean to be a woman, if you're wondering what is Jesus's vision for my life, that is it. That your life would tell the story of Jesus to an unbelieving world. That the way you would live, the way that you would operate, um, everything about you would be pointing the world to the reality of the grace and the love of Jesus. This is the anchor that holds everything together. Now, what's interesting is if you compare that, and again, I don't want to just dunk on culture, but if you compare that to the modern view of what it means to be a woman, it's such a higher calling. It feels to me, and I may be wrong on this, and I'm happy to be wrong, but it feels to me that that culturally we have reduced our idea of what it means to be a woman to something that sounds like try and be like men. I'm a man. I think. Men, I know men. Men are terribly unimpressive individuals. You know men, ladies. You know how unimpressive we are. Many of you live with men. And you're like, yes, very unimpressive. But yet for many of us, we have bought into the lie that that is the ultimate picture of womanhood. That women could be like men. But Jesus' picture for womanhood is much higher, much greater than this. His picture for your life is much greater than be like men. 
His picture for you is that your life would be a reflection of his goodness and grace to an unbelieving world. It's beautiful. So how does that get applied? I want to apply this in a couple of ways. First, I want to speak to women who are not yet married. Just a couple of quick thoughts I want to share. Here's what I'd say to the single gals, and we do have many in our church. <coughs> Your womanhood is not defined by whether you're married or whether you have or are able to have children. You must believe that. Your womanhood is not defined by those things. When we define our womanhood or, or, or ourselves by what we think we want to become, we have bought into a lie. In a sense, we've bought into a false gospel. We put all our hope and all our stock in these things, hoping and trusting that they will satisfy and bring meaning, and bring a source of identity, a sense of identity. But they don't. They can't. They won't. The only people who think my life will have meaning and value once I get married are people who aren't yet married. <laughs> my life will be complete once I have a spouse. My life will be complete once I have children. I promise you it won't be. I promise you it won't be. Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you want to look up these verses later, verses 32 to 38, he says that there is an advantage to not being married. And the advantage is that you're able to give your undivided attention to the work of Jesus. So here's what I would say to the single gals in our church. <clears throat> this goes for single this goes for divorced. Allow the comfort of Christ over the comfort of an earthly husband to make Christ look worthy to the rest of the world. Allow the comfort of Christ over the comfort of an earthly husband to make Christ look worthy to the rest of the world. In other words, do not believe the lie that you need a man in your life to be happy, to be satisfied, and to be complete. Do not believe the lie that there is the perfect man out there for you. Well, there is. There is a perfect man out there for you. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus, friends. I need you to hold that in your heart. Allow Jesus to be your comfort. Second thing, and I, I wish I had more time to spend on this, but I just don't. <clears throat> Second thing, and this is more of a word to all of us as a church family, but as a church, we must, and this goes beyond single, but we must embrace the single person as our family to show the world that it is Jesus who binds us together and truly makes us one. It isn't biological blood that makes us family, it's the blood of Christ. This is a word to us as the church that how we love one another, our love for each other is the greatest apologetic of the gospel to an unbelieving world. And, and for us as a church, we, we have an opportunity to be the presence of Christ to those in our midst who may need the comfort of Christ. So when I speak to the single women in our church about placing the comfort of Christ above the comfort 
of, of a man or a husband, one of the ways that the comfort of Christ is felt is through the body of Christ, which is us. So do we comfort those in our family who need to be comforted? It's an invitation to us as a church to step into the reality of being the presence of Christ for someone else. That they can receive the comfort of Christ through the people of Christ. It's not just an esoteric spiritual reality that they are to experience on their own. Although there is a component to that, there is also an embodied reality and enfleshed reality that we as the people of God get to manifest the presence of Christ for them and how we love. So what better way to make Jesus look beautiful than to be the beauty of Christ for someone else? Again, I wish I had more time on that, but I do not. I want to say just a few things to the married women. We will go to Ephesians 5 now. I'll just read a few verses. Um, I'll start in verse 21. I'll read to, read to verse 30. Apostle Paul writes this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to yourselves. Submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but is holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. <coughs> So just a quick review from a couple of Sundays ago as we looked at verse 32 already, we won't go back there, but the purpose of the marriage relationship, the reason the marriage relationship exists is to display the covenant keeping love between Christ and his church. That be then becomes paramount to understanding how husbands and wives are to interact to one another. So how does the marriage relationship fulfill this? Well, Paul makes it really clear and, and I just want to, I want to help you see it. Okay. I don't, I don't want to just tell you, I want to help you see it. It's through gender. The marriage relationship exists to display the covenant keeping love between Christ and his church. And the way that the marriage relationship fulfills this is through gender. Paul says it in Ephesians five, by the men being the men and the women being the women. Last week, Andrew read a lengthy quote by John Piper where he talked about the two genders being like two parts of a song that work in harmony to make beautiful music. The reality is, according to the Apostle Paul, these parts are not interchangeable. Each part has its own role to play. And Paul makes it very clear in these verses what these roles are. He says it in verse 23, that men are to take their cues from Christ as the head. And then he goes on to lay out in the subsequent verses exactly what that means. And Andrew taught on that last week, so I won't belabor that point. And women are to take their cues. Look at what the apostle Paul says, verse 24, from the allegiance of the church to Christ. And the specific language that is used this isn't fun language, but it's the language of headship and submission. Husbands are the head and wives are invited, called to submit. I just want to hit pause here before you throw things at me. I'm going to unpack it really quickly. But if this is causing something in you, ladies or husbands, causing something in you that is, you're recoiling right now. Ask yourself the question, what am I recoiling against? Or better yet, who am I, who am I recoiling against? Tim Keller, 
says, if your God always agrees with you, there is a very good chance you made him up. In other words, if everything that God asks of you fits perfectly and neatly in the way you already want to live your life, there's a pretty good chance the God you're following, you just made him up. So, so let me just quickly define these terms. This is directly from John Piper in his book, This Momentary Marriage. He defines headship like this. Headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. Andrew talked about that last week. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership <coughs> and to carry it through according to his gifts. Now, what's very interesting, if you go through the, the Bible in general, the New Testament in, in particular, specifically, it does not get into the nitty gritty of how husbands and wives are called and invited to interact with one another. That is because each marriage relationship is going to be different based on gifts, based on personalities, based on strengths, based on weaknesses. The Bible doesn't give us detail. Should, woman, should a woman work outside of the home? Bible doesn't say. Should a woman be a CEO? The Bible doesn't say. Uh, the Bible doesn't give specifics on how the interplay of these roles work themselves out. Rather, this is what we are given by the Apostle Paul here in Ephesians 5 and throughout the scriptures. We are given a vision for our relationship with one another, the way we interact as husband and wife, that Christ would be glorified. So, so here is what I want us to see. Ladies, this is what I want you to see. And of course, by extension, husbands, this applies to you as well. But what you are being invited into here in Ephesians 5 is to relate to your husband in such a way, this is the ask, okay? This is the ask, nothing more, nothing less. To relate to your husband in such a way, and if you include husbands in this, to relate to one another in such a way, that it would image Christ. That it would look like Jesus. Tim and Kathy Keller in their book, The Meaning of Marriage, which we are selling at a discount, and I would highly recommend you pick it up. Use the relationship of the Trinity as an example of the way in which husband and wife are to relate to one another. The Trinity is, is a perfect example of other-centered love. Imagine three dancers. This is the illustration they use. Imagine three dancers on a stage, all trying to be the star of the show, dancing in such a way as to say, look at me, look at me, right? You've been to those like children's Christmas pageants, right? <laughs> Kids supposed to be a sheep and they want to be at the center of the thing. It's a disaster. But in the Trinity, we see three dancers, completely other-centered, completely willing to make the other two the star of the show. I want to read from this book, and this is from Kathy Keller writing about this idea of submission and her own journey with it. And just to give you the full context, Kathy Keller, educated woman, <coughs> she was very liberal, grew up in a liberal uh, home, um, and, and when she first encountered these ideas, these were difficult for her to process. And the way she articulates them here, <coughs> I thought would be very helpful. So let me just read this to us. It's lengthy, but it's worth it. <coughs> In Jesus Christ's person and work, we begin to see a restoration of the original unity and love between the sexes, hearkening back to Genesis 1 and 2. Jesus both elevates and underlines the equality of women as co-bearers of the image of God and the creation mandate. And he also redeems the roles given to man and woman at the beginning. Listen to this, by inhabiting them. By inhabiting them. Both as servant head and helper subordinate. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, we have one of the earliest hymns to Jesus sung by the church, which, which celebrates that although Jesus was equal with God, he emptied himself of his glory and took the role of a servant. Jesus shed his divine privilege without becoming any less divine. And he took on the most submissive role, that of a servant who dies in his master's service. 
In this passage, we see both the essential equality of the first and second persons of the Godhead, and yet the voluntary submission of the Son to the Father to secure our salvation. Let me emphasize that Jesus' willing acceptance of this role was wholly voluntarily, voluntary, a gift to his Father. I, Kathy Keller, discovered here that my submission in marriage was a gift that I offered, not a duty coerced from me. Just on the other side of that coin, and I know Andrew talked about this, but when you think about the headship role of the husband, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How does Jesus love the church? How does he express his headship in servant? in laying down, in washing the feet of his disciples. His instructions to his own disciples were to not rule over people like the Gentiles do, but to become like a servant. And you see this mutual submission, just like we read in Ephesians 5, 21, to submit to one another when we see the proper interplay of these two roles. She goes on to say, as I personally struggled with understanding gender equality within gender roles, it was this passage that entirely took the sting out of the subordinate role assigned to the female sex. When I first heard Christians talk about male and female as different but equal, it sounded a little too much like separate, the separate but equal motto of segregation. So my first encounter with the ideas of headship and submission was both intellectually and morally traumatic. But fortunately, I had some gifted teachers who steered me to Philippians, the Philippians 2 passage, and then I saw it. It was not an assault on the dignity and divinity, but rather led to greater glory of the second person of the Godhead to submit himself and assume the role of servant. Then how could it possibly injure me to be asked to play out the Jesus role in my marriage? This is the invitation to both husbands and wives to play out the Jesus role in your marriage. This passage is one of the primary places that the dance of the Trinity becomes visible. The son defers to his father, taking the subordinate role. The father accepts the gift, but then exalts the son to the highest place. Did you hear that husbands? The father accepts the gift, but then exalts the son to the highest place. Each, each wishes to please the other. Each wishes to exalt the other. Love and honor are given, accepted and given again and again and again. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says directly what is implied in Philippians 2, namely that the relationship of the father and the son is a pattern for the relationship of husband to wife. The son submits to the father's headship with free voluntary and joyful eagerness, not out of coercion or inferiority. The father's headship is acknowledged in reciprocal delight with respect and love. There is no inequality of ability or dignity. We are differently gendered to reflect this life within the Trinity. Male and female are invited to mirror and reflect the dance of the Trinity. Loving, self-sacrificing authority and loving, courageous submission. The son takes a subordinate role and in that movement, he shows not his weakness, but his greatness. This is one of the reasons why Paul can say that the marriage mystery gives us insight into the very heart of God and into the work of our salvation. It's the invitation. Invite the band to come up. <clears throat> I am very aware of the time. But I did not want to cut that short. Ladies. Women. It's an honorable, noble, beautiful invitation. Jesus is inviting us. And if we 
apply last week, husbands, Jesus is inviting us within the context of our marriage relationship to play the Jesus role. We need him to be able to do this. But when we do this, when we live this invitation out, we find him. So I want to pray to that end for us. Let me just say real quick before I pray, if there is anyone in here who is struggling in their marriage, husbands and wives, maybe you're struggling, you're not sure how to sort it out. Wives, maybe you're struggling. Maybe the thought of this kind of submission in light of the current reality you're in is just doesn't feel safe. I want to invite you just to, to come and ask for help. Come talk to me after. Talk to Ken or Matt after. <laughs> I want to help you guys in this. But let me pray for us. Why don't we stand together? Jesus, this is a lot. This is, it's long. <laughs> it's a lot of content. But more than that, it's a lot on our hearts. And so Spirit, we invite you to come and minister to us and speak to us as we respond. We're going to take communion in just a moment. As we respond in communion, as we respond in singing to you and praying to you, we just invite you to come into this moment and do a divine work in our hearts. Wherever there is lack, Jesus, we invite you to step in. Wherever there is pain, we invite you to come and heal. Wherever there is wounding, we invite you to bind. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray. In Jesus' name and all God's children said, Amen. Amen.